Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marks and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Well, well, well. Would you look at that? Episode 10 of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. And they said it wouldn't last. How in the world did I get to 10 episodes? If you're listening to this, you're probably thinking to yourself, 10 episodes, what's what's the big fucking deal? Mark Marin has like 500 episodes or something like that. Probably most podcasts you listen to have a, a couple hundred episodes under their belt. So when I'm sitting here talking about episode 10, you're probably thinking, you know, who the fuck cares? Talk to me when you got 500 episodes. But I can't do that. Because this is episode 10. I can only talk to you about episode 10. Because this is as far as we've gotten. I can tell you this though. I had no idea if I was going to get to 10 episodes. I didn't even know if I was going to have enough to say for 10 episodes. I didn't even know if I was going to have enough people who'd want to come sit down with me in front of a microphone and talk through these first 10 episodes. I can tell you this, though. It's been an awful lot of fun. Uh, It's really been great sitting here and talking with Chanel, uh, kind of introducing you to her. (laughs) I don't know why I stuttered there. I think I was trying to clarify my thoughts. Anyway, actually, you know what? Let let me say this up front for episode number 10, just because I don't want to get your hopes up with anything. Listen to me stuttering. I'm, I'm fucking nervous. It's episode 10. Episode 10. I feel like I feel like I needed to deliver something really great to you for this 10th episode. It feels important to me. But anyway, what I was going to tell you is uh, I'm going solo. I'm doing a solo episode. For the next hour or so, you're going to hear my voice and my voice alone. Why, you ask? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Partly because I haven't done a solo episode since episode one. And when I did episode number one, I don't mind telling you guys, I was scared as a motherfucker. I never podcasted before. Ever. I listen to podcasts all the time. Every day, in fact. Most of the day. If I'm driving anywhere, I put on a podcast. If I'm sitting around my apartment and it's quiet, I put on a podcast. If I'm in the kitchen making myself lunch, I put on a podcast. If I'm on my my iPad playing Candy Crush, crushing candy like a motherfucker, I listen to a podcast. But when I actually started my podcast on episode number one, as soon as I hit record, my ass froze up. I was nervous as a motherfucker. I didn't know what the hell to say on a podcast. So anyway, episode two, as you might recall... I brought in my best friend in the whole wide world and the coolest gal that I know, Chanel Chaco, as my occasional co-host. Now, partly the reason I brought Chanel in is because she's funny and she's smart and she's interesting and she's articulate and she's just got a great voice. She sounds good in front of a microphone. 
So all those things made sense to me. But beyond that, full disclosure, she just made me feel more comfortable. She was sort of a, I don't know, a life preserver of sorts. If Chanel was sitting there by my side, all of a sudden I was just talking with Chanel. And it was easy and it was comfortable and it was nice. And if I wasn't talking to Chanel, then uh, I've had a guest in here. So you've met a couple of a couple of friends of mine, which I was very happy to introduce you to them, if you didn't already know who they were. We had some very nice conversations, and it was cool. And I've got some more guests lined up. I've got some great guests. I'm not going to tell you who they are yet, but I can tell you this. They're involved in the movies. T- tell you what, here's, here's, a little, here's a little sliver of what you can uh, expect in the next couple of episodes. Academy Awards. What do you think about that? I've got lined up a guest who's actually won an Academy Award, if you can believe that shit. You excited? You into it? I'm only ten episodes into this motherfucker, and I've managed to book an Academy Award-winning talent to talk to me on this podcast. Who the fuck is it? Stay tuned. You'll find out soon. Anyway, uh, I've been thinking a lot about doing a solo episode. And the reason I've been thinking about it, uh, it hasn't even, (laughs) this is going to sound bad, I guess, but it hasn't even necessarily been because I feel like this is the, the, the best form I can entertain you in. Because again, when I do this podcast, even though I'm having fun doing it, I'm very aware that there's an audience listening to this. And so I'm always very, very aware of trying to entertain you in some form or fashion. Whether it's just engaging you with an interesting conversation uh, or or regaling you with, with some information about writing and publishing that I happen to know. Uh, or just acting silly and being funny. Whatever it is, I'm always trying to keep you entertained and engaged because if you've downloaded any of my podcasts and taking the time to listen to them, I appreciate that. Like, I appreciate it way more than you can ever realize. Like, if you've ever been sitting, like, in your car listening to me, or uh, on the treadmill, working out, getting your cardio up, burning calories, sweating, but listening to me while you're doing it, man, I appreciate that. You have no idea. When you hear my voice and you're thinking to yourself, man... Martin has no idea that I'm even listening to his show. On the one hand, you're right. I have no idea when and where you're listening to my show. But just know, in the grand universal sense of things, every time you listen to my show, man, it's awesome. And I really appreciate it. So that's the reason that I, I'm very aware of you know, not wanting to waste your time. It's actually, it's basically the, the same philosophy I have with writing. Right, obviously, writing is a, it's a much different medium, but there's there's an audience there, and it's not unlike a podcast. Like if you know if uh, if you're in my reading audience, if you've read my book, I wasn't sitting there watching you read, I wasn't standing over your shoulder, or sitting across from you. You were just reading my book somewhere, probably privately. Maybe you were on a on a cruise ship, or sitting on the subway on your way to work or something like that. Hopefully, you weren't reading it while you're driving. Because that's dangerous, I hear. So don't do that. And while you're at it, don't text and drive either. I know some of you are you're in your car right now, and you might actually be listening to the sound of my voice 
through your phone. You got a smartphone, and it's so fucking smart. It, it can actually play this episode while you drive, which is awesome. But it also means that you have access to, 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 to your text messaging. And I know how that goes. It's, there's that Pavlovian instinct where you, you, hear, you hear your phone buzz or, or ring or, or beep or sing a fucking Justin Bieber song, whatever you've got to let you know you have a, you have a text message. You hear that while you're driving and, you, and your mouth starts salivating and your brain starts racing, your heart's pounding. And you're thinking, who is it? Who the fuck is it? I've got to know. But you're driving. You got your hands at 10 and 2. Because that's the safe way to do it. If your hands aren't at 10 and 2, then you're just not driving safe. And you're putting everyone around you in danger. So 10 and 2, motherfucker. Then you hear your phone. But you're driving. You can't check that shit. It's bad enough to text and drive, but even checking your text and driving, that's not safe. the very least, wait for a red light. It's the least you can do. The very least you can do. Or pull over. Pull over and check it. Everybody driving around you is going to appreciate it. The fuck am I talking about? Oh, right, smartphones, listening to my podcast. Thanks Thanks for that, by the way. That I tell you how much I appreciate it because I do. You guys are awesome. And I've heard from a lot of you. You've been really cool. Uh, you've written some some emails. You've reached out to me on Facebook. I've heard from, from uh, I've heard from some of you on, uh, on on Twitter. In some cases, I've actually had a, the opportunity to to talk to you in person. If that's the case, I probably already knew who you were in real life, so it wasn't like you found me on the street or anything. But either way. You're listening to the show, you're enjoying it, uh, and that's really cool, and I appreciate that. But I don't want to get off this phone point, because I feel this is important, because it's dangerous. So so you get the text, and you feel like, you know, who is it? And then, you know, your, your brain's racing, and your heart's pounding, and so then finally you check. And you're thinking, I'm just going to look down for a second. I can keep, I can keep uh, one hand on ten, and, and, and your two hand, you pick up your phone, but you can't just check the you can't you can't just check your text message because you've got the podcast on, so you probably have to get out of that screen and pull up the text, probably something like that. And let's say you read it safely. Let's say that that's true. You took a risk. It was dangerous. In this particular instance, hopefully, nobody got hurt. There was no accident. Good. You tempted fate. You made it out the other side. Count your blessings. But that's not good enough for you, is it? That's not goddamn good enough for you. You've got to reply. You can't not reply, can you? It's fucking itching your brain. It's like there's a splinter in your head. And the only way to pull it out is if you reply to that goddamn text message. And it's not like it was even an important text. There was no urgency involved. If you don't reply, they're not going to be worried. They just they, they just said something like, hey, how are you? And you know what? When they said you, they didn't even care enough about you to spell the word you. They just put the letter U. What's that tell you about your friends? How much do your friends actually care about you if they don't take the time to actually type out 
Y-O-U. They type U instead. You know what that means? That means they didn't have the time to hit two more buttons. The word U, that's three buttons. It takes about a second per button. And that's if you're taking your time a second per button. And your buddy said to themselves, you know what? I don't have two more seconds for them. I've got one more second for them. And I'm going to use it to hit the, the letter U. They didn't even put a period at the end of that goddamn sentence. Because that'd be one more second. What's my point? If your friend didn't care enough about you to actually spell out the whole word you, then why the fuck are you panicking on the street driving putting everyone else in danger just to reply to him so you can say, I'm cool. Chilling. Driving. Not at 10 and 2. Putting everybody in danger. Martin's probably driving behind me. About to get him in a car accident. He's not going to be able to do episode 11. Because he's going to be up in the hospital. Because I went and injured his ass. Anyway. So there's a little bit of that. Me appreciating what you guys are doing. Now, I wasn't on last week. Oh, you know what? Before I even get to that, I just realized I started a story about 45 minutes ago. I'm exaggerating, of course, but... Uh, I was telling you about why I was doing this solo episode. And the reason that I'm doing this solo episode has almost nothing to do with trying to entertain you. Although, as I said, at the core of every episode, my goal is to entertain you and engage you and, and make sure you're enjoying yourself. The reason I'm doing a solo episode, quite frankly, is I'm facing my fears. Because, when again, like I said, when I did that first episode... And I was sitting alone in front of a microphone. I was terrified. I mean, I did it. And I'm mostly happy with that episode. I haven't listened to it in a long time. And between you and me, I don't know that I'm ever going to listen to it ever again. Because, you know, I'm something of a a perfectionist. And uh, as I engage in any craft, whether it's writing or podcasting, My goal is to be as good at it as I can possibly be. And every time I do it, I try to get better. Hopefully, with every episode that you've listened to, the show's gotten better. Because that's my goal. But that said, if I was going to go backwards and listen to previous episodes, especially a solo episode where it's just me talking and it's not really as good as I'd like it to be, that's going to be tough to listen to. That doesn't mean that you're not allowed to enjoy it. In fact, I hope you enjoy it an awful lot, but I don't know if I'd be able to listen to it without cringing for an hour straight. Anyway, so that said, I'm sort of facing my fears. I'm doing a solo episode because I wasn't sure if I could do it again. Or if I did do it again, would it be interesting? Or would I have enough to talk about? But I think I do. I've got a few things on my mind that have been building up for the last nine episodes, but I haven't really had the the, the, the the venue to talk about it. Well, that's not true either, is it? I've got a goddamn podcast. So technically, I do have the venue to talk about shit. 
What I mean is I've been having a lot of conversations with friends. I've been talking about stuff with Chanel. And so when I'm, when I'm talking with somebody else, you know, I'm engaging in a conversation. I don't want to force my ideas and then sort of make them listen to it. I want to have a conversation. I want to engage in their ideas. I want to talk about stuff that they're interested in. I think that's what a polite podcast host should do. But now that I'm here by myself, hosting myself, then I can talk about some of the stuff that it, that's been on my head. Or in my head. Or on my mind. Is that the difference? So you can have a thought in your head, but not on your head. You can have a thought on your mind, but not in your mind. Does that sound right? Fuck if I know. Maybe somebody on Twitter knows. I'll check that out later. Anyway, I was I've started to tell you, then I keep cutting myself off. So uh so so I was off last week. There was no show last week. And it wasn't because I forgot to record. And it wasn't because I wasn't thinking about the podcast. Because frankly, I think about this podcast pretty much every day. Even though you guys get one show a week, mostly, you know, every now and then there's an exception. You get one show a week, but but don't take that to mean that I'm not thinking about this show or thinking about you guys or thinking about what you might find interesting or entertaining as you engage in your in your podcast needs. But one of the realities that I've discovered in doing this podcast is, you know, it's kind of a lot of work. But it's fun. That's the thing. It's fun work. Because, you know, something can be a lot of work, and it can be some bullshit. Like, I imagine going out, like, under the sun, maybe in the summer, maybe somewhere in Arizona where it gets to be, like, 120 degrees. So hot that you can boil an egg on the hood of your car. And maybe for for your job, you work eight hours a day, and you're out under the sun, and you've got to dig a trench. I don't even know what that means, by the way, to dig a trench. I know it probably involves a shovel. And digging shit out the ground. I don't know why you would dig a trench, but I know that it's a job and it exists. And it's probably hard as fuck. And you're out in the sun. That's a lot of work. And that sucks. So when I say that this podcast is a lot of work, believe me, I, I, I know the difference. It's not the same sort of work as the dude or gal under the hot sun digging a trench. Maybe they don't even know why they're digging a trench. They just know that this is what they get paid to do. So they go out and do it. So when I say doing the the podcast is hard work, what I mean is it's a lot of work. I might have already said that, but, you know, you can't count on me to remember everything that I've said. You should know that about me. It's a lot of work, which means it it takes up uh, a lot of time. It takes up a lot of hours in the day to put together an episode. Or at the very least, I I should say this, it takes a lot of hours in the day to put together an episode in the way that that, that I want to present it to you. You know, cutting it together, adding music, making sure it sounds good, or at least as good as I can make it. Because again, I'm still learning how to to do this thing. I'm still getting comfortable with, with with this medium of communication. So by the time I get to episode 100, it might sound a hundred times better than this particular episode. 
And if that's the case, I'll be thrilled. But in the meantime, at this at this moment in history, this is as good as I can make the show. And that said, it takes a lot of time to do it. But I always enjoy it. I feel, I feel like I should tell you that. It's never grueling. I never resent the work. I'm never, you know, in the thick of things, working on the podcast and thinking, fuck, the fuck am I doing this for? The fuck am I putting myself through this? I love it. It's a lot of fun. But like anything else that's fun, you know, playing video games, watching movies, hanging out with your friends, it takes time. And, you know, we only have so much time in the day. You know, and in my case, I, you know, I've got, I've got a pretty packed schedule. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying I'm kind of a busy dude. So when I find time to do the podcast, I'm finding time in the in the cracks and slivers of of everything else that I'm doing. And very occasionally, I feel like sometimes, you know, I've got so much going on that it's just better if I if I skip a week with the podcast and take care of business in some of the other areas of my life. Doesn't mean I wasn't thinking about you guys. And it doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't make me sad not to put out a podcast. Uh, in a perfect world, I'd put out a podcast every week. Frankly, in a perfect world, I would do two or three episodes a week. Because I love those podcasts where they've got like two or three episodes a week, especially when it's a, a host that you really love. You love their voice. You love their ideas. You like to hear what they've got going on. I love being able to listen to them a lot. And I wish I had more time to do more episodes. But right now, as of now, April of 2014... Just not possible. Not yet, anyway. But I told you all that for a reason. It's not just me. It's not just me sort of uh, talking stream of consciousness style. I actually do have a, a method to this madness. There's a point to all of this. And the point is about writing. And this episode, this whole episode, is ultimately going to be about writing in some form or fashion. So the reason I took off last week from the podcast is I wanted to focus on my writing. Because for the last couple of weeks, really the last couple of months, because the podcast, I've, I've been doing this now for a couple of months. And even before you heard the first episode, by the way, I was working on this podcast. I've actually been been working and planning and building this podcast since, uh, I would say, maybe October or November of 2013. You didn't get the first episode until almost the end of January, I believe maybe middle of January, something like that. But I was planning even a few months before that. So so, in my, so I've actually been working on this for a while. Not this episode, by the way. The whole show. And so while I've been working on the show, I'm also simultaneously working on my next writing project, which is a, a vampire trilogy. A trilogy of vampire novels, to be clear. Some of you already know that. You already you know that I've been working on a these vampire novels for the last couple of years. So uh, so that's that's one of the things I'm going to talk about on today's show. But anyway, you know, the point that I'm making right now is that I've been working on the vampire novels and I've been doing the podcast. And I've been doing, you know, a million other things that take up my time. And so I found in the last couple of weeks, I'd become so focused on the podcast, which is cool because I love it, but I become so focused on the podcast that uh, inadvertently my vampire trilogy had sort of taken a back seat. 
And it's not the biggest deal in the world, because I'll talk about that too. It's not a bad idea to put your writing aside for a little bit. It's not a bad thing at all, but I'll talk about that. But for the last uh, two or three weeks, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I've been thinking, man, I need to, I need to really get back on that. Because nobody else is writing it. It's not like when I'm not writing it, I've got some uh, some like second unit writers getting stuff done, working on some of the little things that I can't get to. If I'm not working on it, that means it's just not getting worked on. So uh, I thought about it. I even talked to Chanel about it, believe it or not, because that's 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 how much I was thinking about it, that I actually had a conversation with Chanel about, you know, trying to budget my time and figure this thing out and not wanting to miss a podcast because I, w- I want to do it every week. Like, that's my goal. Every time I don't get, get a podcast during a week, I feel very disappointed in myself. Uh, and Chanel, who is not only uh, beautiful but wise, said, it's all right, miss a week. Work on your vampire book. That's important, too. You'll come back next week. It's cool. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what she said. And very often in my life, what I find is that sometimes all I need is Chanel's approval. If Chanel says it's cool, then I feel like it's all right. So Chanel gave me permission to not do a podcast. So that's what happened last week. But it wasn't wasted time. Every day of last week... I worked on my vampire trilogy. And of course, you know, what does that even mean when I say that I worked on my vampire trilogy? Is it a trilogy uh, if you've just begun it? Well, one thing I can tell you about the vampire trilogy is I've already written all three books. What do you think about that? Because I know, I I bet you read a lot of uh, book series, serieses. You know, I never know how to say that out loud. The plural of series series is seri book seri I don't fucking know but anyway you probably read a lot of book serieses and you get one book at a time because it's an awful lot of motherfucking work to write one book so your favorite author he or she they write one book They put it out in the world. They start working on the next one. Get that book done. Put it out. Book two. Then they get on to the next one. And they go with the series like that. And it makes logical sense. But me, my ass had to go and do it the hard way. I wrote three books all at the same time. Well, that's not exactly accurate. I wrote them one after another. But essentially, you know, I did the whole trilogy in one sitting. Virtually one sitting. Fuck, I'm taking myself too literally. Okay, I didn't sit down and write three books straight, nonstop. But, this is the project that I worked on, was writing three books from beginning to end. But even then, that's not even how it started, really. Well, well, here's how it started. I believe it was 2009. And uh, I was I was still working on Inside the Outside, and I'd finished uh, the most recent draft of Inside the Outside. Uh, that that book, Inside the Outside, uh, I eventually published that in 2011 to give you you know an idea, a, f- a full scope of this timeline. So I'd finished the most recent draft of Inside the Outside, and uh, what I like to do when I write a novel or when I'm working on a novel, 
is after I finish a, a draft of it, you know, beginning to end, first chapter to the last chapter, I like to set it aside. And how long I set a writing assignment aside, or a writing project, assignment sounds like it's homework. And it's not homework, I do it because I enjoy it. But anytime I, I finish a writing project and I want to set it and I want to set it aside, I don't have like a set amount of time for how long I want to step away from it. Um, but I do I do generally think about the 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 time that I that I step away from it should be you know somewhat equivalent to to how long the project actually is. So let's say I was writing a short story, which I haven't done for a very long time. But let's say I was writing a short story. Let's say it was 10, 15, 20 pages long, something of that nature. Working on a draft, set it aside. It's not a very long story. Maybe I walk away from it for two or three days, something like that. Then I come back, take a look at it with a, with a fresh pair of eyes. If it's a novel and it's, you know, maybe 300 pages, well, then I want to step aside for longer than that. Maybe a month, month and a half, maybe two months. Now, if you're a writer, one of the things that uh, that you probably know is that you know, you know your writing muscle, it's like any other muscle in your body. You got to work it out every day, and as long as you work it out every day, it's going to stay nice and strong and limber and, and and do the things you need it to do. But if you let your writing muscle become sedentary, then like any other muscle in your body, it's going to weaken. It's going to atrophy, and the next time you try to use it, it's going to be harder than you remember. So if you're writing a book and you want to set it aside for one or two months, what are you supposed to do? You don't want your writing muscle to get all weak on you, so you keep writing. But what the hell do you write? Well, it could be anything. As long as you're writing, that's the main thing. Maybe just write emails every day. Maybe get yourself a pen pal. Maybe you've got a blog, and you use this as an opportunity just to start blogging every day. Because maybe your blogging took a backseat. Because for anybody who, who has a blog, you know, as well as I know, it is hard as fuck to keep up a blog. But I guess that's a different story for uh, another episode. My point is that you should be writing every day. Even if it's not creative writing, even if it's not storytelling writing, if, even if it's not fiction writing. You should be writing every day. Here's something else, a tip for me to you. I can't prove this is true. Nobody's ever told me this. But I believe it's true for me. And so I figure that's good enough that I'll share it with you. Even if you're not writing every day, you should be reading every day. Because I believe when you read, it's exercising the same muscle. It's, it's exercising that same writing muscle. Because I very much believe that that your writing and reading muscles exist in the same area. So you should be doing one or the other or both every day. You should be reading every day. Or you should be writing every day. Or you should be reading and writing every day. So on those days where, where you're not writing, maybe you, spend, maybe you spend a week or two away from, from your own writing projects, pick up a book. Read a novel. See what somebody else is up to. See what kind of stories they're telling and how they tell those stories. See what kind of characters they're creating and how they develop those characters, how they make them real, how they make them feel like flesh and blood on the page, how when that character talks, you can hear their voice in your ear. When that character is happy, it makes you happy. When that character is in danger, it makes you feel nervous. 
How the fuck did they do that? It's like a fucking magic trick. Well, read the book. And when you finish it, read another one. And when you finish it, read another one. Your mind's going to absorb all of that. And then when you go back to your own writing, you're going to find that your writing muscle is every bit as strong as, as when you left it off. So keep that in mind. Read every day, or write every day, or do both. It's going to make your writing all the better. But anyway, back to me. So finished a draft of Inside the Outside, set it aside. I knew I wasn't going to go back to it right away. I knew I wanted to set it aside for at least a month. And again, the reason you do that, if I haven't already been clear on that, is you need to be able to go back to it with a fresh pair of eyes. Because once you finish a draft, well, basically, here's how it goes. After you finish the first draft of any novel, every draft after that, it's all revision. Everything is revision. It's rewriting. There's an adage. Maybe you've heard it. Writing is rewriting. Or writing is editing. Or some version of that. All of that's true. At least as far as I'm concerned. So you write the first draft. And then once you write the first draft, the way that I think about it is I I sort of imagine writing. It's not unlike sculpting, if you were a sculptor. And let's say you were a sculptor who sculpted with clay. Well, if you sculpt with clay, you can't sculpt until you got a block of fucking clay in front of you. And then once you've got that clay, now you can sculpt it. Now you can mold it. Now you can push push your thumbs into it and and manipulate the, the shapes and make it look like something interesting. Maybe something beautiful. Maybe something weird. But the thing is, you can't do any of that until you got the clay in front of you. So writing, for me, it's the exact same thing. Except instead of clay, what I need is I need a block of words. And that block of words is what I call the first draft. But, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a sculptor, you can probably go out to, to the art store somewhere and buy yourself a block of clay. But if you're a writer, you can't go out to the store and buy a first draft. Unless you're plagiarizing, and if that's the case, fuck you, fucking plagiarizer. I don't got time for your fucking ass. If you're a plagiarizer, I don't even want you listening to this podcast. So go somewhere else. Anyway. You're a writer, you need a block of words, you need a first draft. And the only way to get a first draft, you gotta sit down and you gotta write it. And in in Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird, which many a writer has that book on their shelves... And if you're interested in creative writing and specifically maybe doing like long form writing, like doing a novel, uh, Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird, is uh, it's wonderful. You should have it at your disposal. You should read it cover to cover. I did. It's great. And it helped me a lot with my writing. Early on. I read it early on. I was still a horrible writer. When I say horrible, I might be... I'm probably being hard on myself, but truly, I I wasn't writing anything that I would want anybody to actually see. But that's also how you learn anyway. That said, I read her book early on in my in my in my education, my journey of becoming a writer. And it was extremely useful to me. Anyway, in her book, she talks about the shitty first draft. It's actually, incidentally, and not coincident not coincidentally, 
one of the first chapters in the book, but she talks about writing the shitty first draft. And essentially what she says to you as a writer is give yourself permission to write a shitty first draft. Know that the first draft of of any story you have to tell is not going to be the best version of it. Because I think that's how a lot of writers get stuck. I think that's how a lot of writers get paralyzed with what they call writer's block. I don't believe in writer's block, by the way. I mean, I know that the term exists, and I know what people believe to be writer's block. You know, writer's block, if you're you're not a writer, or maybe you've heard the term and you don't actually know what it means, well, if you don't know what it means, I'm probably a little bit surprised, but just in case you don't know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about writer's block. Writer's block is when you sit down and you're staring at a blank page, whether it's a whether it's a Microsoft Word on your computer screen or just literally a blank piece of paper in front of you and you want to write and nothing's coming to you. You can't write anything down. You can't think of anything. So you stare at the blank page and you start to get frustrated. You start to get anxious. You start to get a little bit stressed out. Maybe you start doubting yourself a little bit. Maybe you start thinking, maybe, maybe I'm no good at this. Whatever gave me the idea that I could ever be a writer? Because here I am sitting in front of my computer, got my fingers hovering over the keys, and I can't write one goddamn word. So that's writer's block. But as I said, I don't believe in writer's block. Here's what I think writer's block is. Writer's block is the writer's fear that what they have to say isn't worth writing down. I don't believe that any writer ever sits down and they don't have an idea. Because even if you have a shitty idea, you still have an idea. Write that motherfucker down. Doesn't mean you have to keep it. It doesn't have to make it to the final draft. You can delete it in the morning, start all over. Write down another shitty idea. And then tomorrow, if you don't like it, delete it. Write another shitty idea. And guess what? If you write down enough shitty ideas, eventually you're going to work the shit out. And somewhere behind all those shitty ideas, there's going to be a good idea. But you can't get to that good idea until you push out all the other shitty ideas. This uh, th- this advice is getting a little bit scatological, isn't it? I'm not speaking literally, but nonetheless, you get my point. So that said, I don't believe in writer's block. So if I sit in front of a screen, even if I feel like I don't have anything interesting to say and I don't know what to say about this story, I won't stop. I'll just start writing. Write anything. Because writing anything is better than writing nothing. Look around the room. Write about where you're sitting. Did you have breakfast this morning? Write about what you had for breakfast. If you're writing a novel, write about your character. Give your breakfast to them. Pretend that they had breakfast with you. What did they have? But just say what you had. Again, it might not be interesting. It might be shitty. It might be stupid. It might not make the final draft. But the important thing is that you're writing. So that's why I don't believe in writer's block. Writer's block, again, just a writer's fear that what they have to say isn't worth writing down. But it doesn't mean they have nothing to say. They just don't want to write down the shitty idea because they're afraid to actually realize it on the page. Maybe because if they see a shitty idea on the page, that somehow it's going to validate in their minds that they were a shitty writer all along. And really, that's what all of us writers think. Any writer worth their salt 
probably spend at least five minutes of every day quietly in their own mind thinking to themselves, God, I fucking suck at this. I'm a fucking shitty writer. Why the hell do I even try? Doesn't mean you are, it just means that it kind of comes with the territory. I don't know why, but it's true. I used to think it was just me, but then, I, you know, over the years I've met enough writers to find out it's not just me. Apparently, it comes with the territory of being a writer. But anyway, uh, I wanted to give you some, some access into, uh, into my process as far as writing goes. Because again, I found over the years having uh, the opportunity to, to meet a lot of writers and talk to a lot of writers, that not every writer approaches you know writing and storytelling in exactly the same manner. Every writer's process is unique to them, I think. I think there, there's a lot of um, overlapping stuff. We do have a lot of stuff in common. But generally speaking, we don't all do it exactly the same. So I was thinking you might, you might be interested to hear a little bit about, uh, about my process and how I go about doing this. Uh, specifically, I'll talk about the vampire novel, since that's what I've got uh, on the docket at the moment. And uh, I have every intention of publishing book one of my vampire novel in 2014. That's the goal. That's the plan. That's been the plan for a, a very long time. But I should mention this, that even though that's the plan, ultimately, I don't want to publish a book unless I feel... It's a, a really, really good book. That it's a book of really fine quality that I'm comfortable asking you to spend uh, a couple of bucks to buy and read. You know, because again, because uh, not only am I a writer, I'm also an independent publisher. So as an independent publisher, I'm, I'm the guy who, who puts the book out. I'm the guy who puts a, a price tag on the book. I have to actually determine... Uh, how much money um, to charge for for each book, and you know that's something. Uh, what a, I, I struggle with that, to be honest with you, because you know the the, the worlds of art and commerce, they the, they don't meet very easily in the middle. There's no there's not a very comfortable meeting place for for art and commerce. So you know for so for a lot of writers, uh, specifically writers who are publishing traditionally. You know, they write the book, and then they have a traditional publisher. The publisher takes care of the business side of things, including, you know, the price tag. And to the writer, they don't have to worry about that. In my case, I wear both hats. I write the book, but I also publish the book, which means I have to give it a price. And so, you know, uh, I, I feel weird asking for money for the book. Don't get me wrong, I don't feel too weird. I'd like to earn money for the book because, you know, that's part of the idea. It's not the whole idea, but, you know, it's a big part of the idea is to is to ultimately, you know, generate, uh, you know, some income uh, for this for this work that I that I've put out. But that said, um, the fuck was I talking about? I keep starting one idea and then uh, and then digressing to some other world and then I realized that I can't remember what the fuck I was talking about let me see I'm gonna go backwards bear with me Let's see writing process uh, vampire book 
coming out in 2014. That's right. Okay. So what I was going to say is the goal is to get it out in 2014. But if I don't feel like the book is ready, I'm not going to put it out just because I said that was the goal. Uh, If I don't feel like the book is ready for your eyes until 2015, then it comes out in 2015. But just know that when the book does come out, that uh, in my mind and in my heart, this book is as good as I can make it. And so because this book is as good as I can make it by the time it comes out, then I feel comfortable asking you to spend your money on the book. I would feel like an asshole if I put out a shitty book and I knew it was shitty. That's the other thing. I might think it's great. You might think it's shitty. It's all, you know, our, our, our aesthetic opinions about these sort of things, you know, they're, they're all subjective. But that said, if I put out a book that I actually believed was shitty and then I asked you to spend money on it, well, then I'm the asshole. So I always want to make sure that before I put a book out on the market and ask you to spend money on it, it's got to be as good as I could possibly make it. And so when, the, so when that's the case, then, then you'll see the book, uh, and then it'll be available for you to buy. As far as how much it's going to cost, I don't know yet. I've got to get the whole thing done. Got to look at my expenses. My actual, you know, the actual, you know, monetary expenses that, that I've uh, invested in the book, but... I don't want to bore you with that. Or maybe you're not bored with that. Maybe you want to know about that. I don't mind talking about that stuff, but we'll, we'll do that another time. Today I just kind of want to talk about writing. So the vampire novel started started that one in 2009, and when I started it, it wasn't a trilogy. I never ever had any intention of writing a series of books. I only ever plan on writing one vampire novel. And I'd been thinking about writing a vampire novel for for quite a few years, primarily because I am a, a huge, huge nerd for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Love it, love it, love it. I've seen every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer at least twice. And probably more than that. Not only do I have the whole series on box set, I think I have the whole series on box set twice. I think I had the whole series and then maybe, oh, I know what it was, uh, a few years back for Christmas, Chanel's sister got us this really badass full series box set of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So so I, I literally, not only have I seen every episode twice, I literally have two copies of every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I love it. And just recently, last year, right around November, uh, I got into the comic books because, you know, the series ended after episode, after series seven, season seven, pardon me. Fuck, I'm, I'm sounding like a, an idiot here. Uh, the series ended after seven seasons. And so fans like myself, you know, it, we, we hated it. We hated to see it go because we want more story. But it makes sense. You know, Sarah Michelle Geller, you know, played Buffy. She's got other stuff she wants to do. She wants to make movies. Maybe she wants to do a play. I know she's got a couple of kids. She's got a husband married to Freddie Prince Jr. They've got a life. What's she going to do? Just spend the rest of her life making Buffy just because I love it? I get that. Joss Whedon, the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, he's got shit he wants to do. He's, you know, he made some other TV shows. He was working on Angel. He made Dollhouse with Eliza Dushku, which for my money is fucking brilliant. It only lasted two seasons, unfortunately. 
but it is a really, really, really brilliant show, Dollhouse. Apparently, I saw on the internet a few years back, some of Joss Whedon's fans kind of met Dollhouse with some mixed reviews, and I was shocked, because I thought it was fuck. I thought he fucking knocked it out of the park. There was nothing wrong with Dollhouse. Incidentally, on the other end of things, Firefly, which was uh, Joss Whedon's uh, second series, I believe it was sort of that he did while he was doing Buffy, Firefly is hugely popular amongst uh, sci-fi, sci-fi TV watching nerds like myself. Except I never got into sci I never got into Firefly. I tried. I watched like three or four episodes, and I just couldn't get into it. I wasn't digging it. But again, like I said a little bit earlier, you know, when, when we're talking about writing or storytelling or making TV shows, it's all subjective. So a lot of Joss Whedon fans, they they love Firefly. They get huge boners when they watch Firefly. For me, didn't do it for me. Dollhouse, on the other hand, Dollhouse is, is, is right in my wheelhouse for, for the type of show that I enjoy. I fucking love Dollhouse. If you've never seen Dollhouse, basically it, it, it's... Uh, it takes place um, not in the it, it, it takes place in the future, I guess, but not not a terribly distant future. The world still looks very much like I, our world, but there's a there's this technology, this sort of secret underground technology, that um, that allows certain people with access to this technology. They can take a person, man or woman, and they can they can wipe out their memory. They they can make their brains a, a blank slate, but they're not they're not vegetables. You know, they still have they still have a pulse. Their heart's beating. Their eyes are open. They're observing the world around them. They can still walk and talk and engage. They just you know they're just they're 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 you know they're like really really articulate zombies. But when they wipe their memory, they don't just throw it away. They actually save their memories, and they say they basically save their personality on on a hard drive, and then they can take somebody else's personality, and they can uh, they can inject it into that blank slate. And then this sort of really articulate zombie becomes whoever they, they, they put that in. And so there's this service in, in Dollhouse that, uh, for the most part, sort of like a sort of like a prostitution ring, where you know if, if you're a, a gazillionaire and you're and you want to you know you've got a million dollars that you're willing to spend on the perfect man or woman for the weekend or however long you want them, then uh, then this underground company called Dollhouse, they will literally create the perfect man or woman to your to your needs and wants. Because they think they've got all these personalities and they'll inject them into a into a head and then that's that's the person that you get and that, that you're paying for. So it's called Dollhouse. It's fucking brilliant. But apparently a lot of uh Joss Whedon folks didn't uh didn't dig it as much. I get that I guess. I thought it was great though. And I've showed it to some other people, like friends and family, and I've never shown it to anybody who didn't also love it, so I don't know who the fuck wasn't enjoying it. Anyway. I did it again, didn't I? I started one idea and I trailed off. That's alright. This time I remember what I was talking about. I was talking about my my vampire novel, and how I was inspired to write it, because I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And so I, I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer so much, and I also love you know I love uh, I love True Blood, or at least I did love True Blood. 
I really loved True Blood for like two seasons. And then after season two, I started to like True Blood. And in the last couple of seasons, I found that I don't really like True Blood anymore. It's not a very good show anymore, but, uh, but you know, it's, uh, you, you spend enough time with characters on a TV show that even, uh, uh, even when the show jumps the shark as, as John Hine, uh, coined once upon a time, even when a show jumps the shark, you spend enough time with these characters, even when the show gets bad, you know, you keep watching, or at least I do. I still want to know what happens, even if I'm not enjoying the show. Same thing happened with Dexter, unfortunately. Because I love Dexter. Season 1 and 2 of Dexter, off the charts brilliant. Season 3 of Dexter, pretty good for half the season. Second half of the season, fucking home run. Season 4 of Dexter, holy shit. Season 4 of Dexter is some masterful motherfucking storytelling beginning to end season 5 of Dexter kind of made me wish they would have stopped with season 4 of Dexter and then it went on from there I finished watching it I watched every episode but (sighs) got disappointing towards the end anyway So I wanted to write a vampire novel, uh, and I'd wanted to do it for uh, quite a few years. So, going back to to, to my writing process, I finished a draft of Inside the Outside. I was setting it aside for about a month, at least a month, and I didn't want to sit dormant for a month to let my writing muscle atrophy. So I decided to go ahead and write something else. What was I going to write? I had no ideas. I literally had no ideas, because I'd put every good idea I pretty much put into inside the outside. I had nothing left. I dumped the kitchen sink into that motherfucker because I had no idea if I was ever going to write another book. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to leave any, any chamber, any chamber full. I wanted to, I wanted to shoot every chamber in this really bad gun metaphor that I don't think I'm getting right. So I decided, well, let me let me start writing my vampire novel. And and when I sat down to write it, in my mind, I wasn't even really calling it a novel because I didn't even know if I had enough of enough ideas for a novel. Cuz at that time, like I said, I had no ideas. Literally no ideas. All I had was I like vampire stories and I think it'd be fun to write one. That's all I had. So here was the process. I sat down in front of the computer and I just started telling a story off the top of my head. I didn't know who the characters were. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what the point was. I just started writing. And that was kind of fun. Scary, unsettling to, to, to kind of write without a net. A lot of writers do that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily one of those writers, but I'll get into my process in more detail in, in, a, in a couple of minutes. So my, my goal at that point was just to, to sit down, uh, start writing, and see if I can get two, three, maybe four chapters out of this. You know, I I didn't necessarily know where the book was going, where the story was going, but I just wanted to see, you know, if, if without having a plan in place, if I could knock out two or three chapters, then in my mind, that would kind of tell me there's enough here. There's enough fertile ground in this idea that I, that I can reasonably write a, a vampire novel. 
So that's what I did. I just started writing. And so, so when I write a novel, my goal, and by the way, this is not an original thought. It's just, it's just a thought that I happen to agree with as far as storytelling goes. Is when you're telling a story, it's really important to start at the most interesting place that you can possibly start at. Now, for you, if the most interesting part of the story is the ending, it doesn't mean you start at the ending. But, you know, you don't want to waste the reader's time by giving them some bullshit up at the front. Don't bore them up front. I, I'll read a lot of stories, and, you know, the first two, three, four pages are, are kind of boring. Maybe the writing is nice. Maybe they've got a nice literary voice, and that's cool. If you've got a good literary voice, you're probably going to hold my attention. But if we're talking about storytelling, nothing frustrates me more than reading a story where the writer hasn't made it a point to grab my fucking attention from sentence one. When I pick up a book, I want that first sentence. And if not, maybe not the first sentence, because that's that could be tricky. But at least the first paragraph. If we're talking about a novel, maybe the first page. That first page, when I read it, that first page should grab me by the fucking throat and pull me in and lock me down. And it should say, you are not going to stop reading this because you can't. You've got to keep reading. That's what I want to feel when I pick up a book. I love that. And it it frustrates me when writers don't do that. It especially frustrates me when I read, say, two or three pages. The writer's boring me, but I'm going to give him a chance. And let's say, like, on page four, boom, there it is. They, 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 they hit a sentence. They hit a moment. They hit a scene that's fucking great and engaging. And that's the scene that grabs me by the throat. And I say to myself, why the fuck didn't you start there? That's where you should have started your story. Why are you wasting my goddamn time with all this other fluff that doesn't matter? Get rid of that shit. Start at the moment that is the most interesting. Or at least that's how I feel about it. So that said, I'm writing this vampire novel, and I want to take my own advice. I want to start at the point that's most interesting. So if you're talking about a vampire novel, what's one of the most interesting elements in a vampire novel well for me it's watching a vampire drink blood it's watching a vampire take their human prey and stick their fangs in their neck and drink their blood so why not start there so in chapter one of my vampire novel literally the first sentence you're going to read is you're going to see a vampire and you're going to see a human and you're going to see that vampire sticking their fangs in that human's neck sentence one chapter one BAM! Why the fuck did I say BAM? Like I'm on the cooking network all of a sudden. If I'm, if I'm saying shit like BAM on episode 100, by all means, call me an asshole. I don't know what the fuck that was about. So anyway, start of the vampire novel. Uh, and, and again, I, don't, I didn't know the characters. Um, I think I, I probably gave them names eventually, early on, Adam and Olivia. If you've read my vampire shorts, they're available on Amazon.com. I essentially posted uh, the first two chapters of the novel. And uh, the first one is Adam and Olivia. And so Adam and Olivia, that's literally the first chapter that that I wrote. 
And so Adam is the vampire, Olivia is is the human, and in uh, the first sentence of that story, Adam is sucking Olivia's blood. Because in my mind, most interesting place to start. And then I go from there. Now, once you start someplace interesting, in, in terms of storytelling, then it's okay to go backwards a little bit. Then you can put in some of the some of the less ex- less exciting but still important information. So that's kind of what I did is uh is in the first paragraph, I wanted to hit you, hit you hard, grab your imagination by the throat, pull you in, so you gotta read this story. And then once I feel like I've sort of, you know, excited your imagination, then I cool things off a little bit, give you some some exposition, give you some backstory, tell you who these people are people and vampire is a vampire considered a person I struggle with that this this whole time writing a book writing writing this vampire trilogy uh, so so I never refer to a vampire as a person even if it's only just in, in conversation even if it's not literally what I mean I decided just to play it safe I never refer to a vampire as as a person that might seem obvious to you but you know when I was writing it, I wasn't sure what to do about that. I mean, I eventually made my own decision, but, you know, you get it. So then I wrote that. I wrote Adam and Olivia not quite in one setting, sitting. Not quite in one sitting. Pardon me. But I probably wrote it in, you know, two or three days, something like that. It wasn't too laborious. It came fairly easily, and it was a lot of fun to write, and I really enjoyed it. That was my first clue that this was going to be a project that uh, that might very well make it all the way to the end. And then the next chapter uh, became Jesus, the Mexican Vampire Hunter. That's the other vampire short you can get on Amazon. Both vampire shorts, by the way, are 99 cents each. So if you'd like to get a taste of my vampire trilogy, you can get that taste for 99 cents for each story. Or, better yet, check this shit out. I almost forgot. I have a mailing list. Go onto my website. Either go to martinlestraps.com or martinlestrapshow.com. Two separate websites, but you can get one site. You can get into both websites. If you go to martinlestraps.com, you can get the podcast through there. And if you go to martinlestrapshow.com, you can get to my official website from there. Either way, I've got a mailing list on both sites that you have access to. Sign up for the mailing list. All you do is you punch in your name and, uh, and an email where I can send you uh, newsletters and information for what's going on. Sign up for the mailing list, and in return for that, I give you a free copy of Adam and Olivia, a free copy of that first chapter of the vampire novel. That I mentioned it was free. And, and you know, I mean, let, let's let's be honest. It's just the two of us right now. Let's drop all this pretense, this podcasting pretense. And let's just fucking talk like grown-ups. 99 cents is basically the same as free. There's a store called the 99 cent store. And my guess is you've shopped there before. And there's a reason you love shopping at the 99 cent store. The reason you like shopping at the 99 cent store is because when you walk in, you say, holy shit, I can't believe all this shit is free. Of course, it's not free. And you're like, I know it's not free, but it's 99 cents. 
It may as well be free. Well, I, I, I don't have my books in the 99 cent store, but what I do have is I have two vampire shorts on Amazon.com, and they each cost 99 cents. So if you've ever gone into the 99 cent store and you bought some Tupperware for 99 cents, or maybe you bought some glassware, or maybe you bought a notebook because you're going back to school, or maybe you bought some candy, or maybe you bought some produce. Between you and me, I don't know if you should be buying produce from the 99 cent store, but if you do, it's 99 cents. You're on a budget. I'm not judging you. If you ever spent 99 cents on that, then, you know, what's the harm? Spend 99 cents on one of my vampire shorts. See if you like it. But if you don't want to spend 99 cents, just go to my website. Sign up for the mailing list. I'll give it to you for free. Free. You know free is your favorite motherfucking word. You know who else likes the word free? Prisoners. They love the word free. Anyway, where was I? So I wrote uh, wrote the first chapter, wrote the second chapter, uh, wrote maybe one or two more chapters after that. And, you know, they weren't perfect. And I knew that, you know, these versions of the chapters that I had written, you know, wouldn't necessarily look like that when the book uh, it was ultimately done. But I had enough there that I felt like, okay, I think I've got a story here. I feel like these characters are interesting. I think they've got something to say. I think they've got uh, an adventure in front of them. Uh, and I think that adventure is going to be interesting, not only for the reader, but I think that adventure is going to be interesting for me just to write about. Because that's the, that's, the, that's the other important thing. If you're writing a story, you've got to be entertained by it. You've got to be excited by it. Every time you sit down, you've got to be thrilled, like a kid going to Disneyland, to go back into this world of your creation and write this story. Because if you're not excited writing this story... I've got news for you, kid. The reader's not going to be excited either. So keep that in mind. So once I knew that I had this story ready, here's the next thing that I do. I outline. I outline the whole story. Now, a lot of writers, they'll tell you that that's, uh, that's, cou- that's counterintuitive to their process. They don't like to outline the story. They like to discover it along the way. They want to go on the same journey as their characters, and they, and they don't want to know what's happening until it happens. And I get that. Tom Robbins, one of my, one of my very favorite all-time writers. I was going to say novelist because I love his novels. But I've written some of his... Did I say I've written some of his writing? That's not true. <laughs> I've read some of his writing that's, uh, that, that wasn't a novel. And pretty much everything that he writes, I love. I don't know if he's capable of writing something... That I, that I wouldn't enjoy. Tom Robbins could probably write his grocery list and send it over to me. And I would read it with a big old smile on my face. But anyway, Tom Robbins, uh, I've read in interviews with him. He's, he's, very, he's very sort of private and, and sort of a, a re- a elusive, something of a recluse, maybe. No, I don't think he's a recluse. I don't want to project too many ideas on him of, of what I think of, about him. He's just very private keeps his private life very, very hidden, which is fair. Tom Robbins doesn't do a podcast, is, is, is what I'm saying. But he has done some interviews, and I've read some of those interviews. And in more than one of those interviews, he's talked about, you know, he's a little bit, he's illuminated on his writing process. And for him, 
he does not like the idea of outlining. He's one of those writers, you know. Again, Stephen King is also one of these writers, but but with the uh, Tom Robbins specifically, uh, he goes sentence by sentence. He says, you know, from one sentence to the next. He doesn't think beyond that sentence. And that's crazy to me. That's some crazy focused concentration. Because even if you're even if you're sort of in the moment, maybe you see like a scene. And you're sort of working out that scene, then you move on to the next one. Tom Robbins says he doesn't move beyond one sentence. And then when that's, once that sentence is done, he moves on to the next one. And then he'll think about the next one. And he does that until the book is done. And it works for him, because I fucking love his books. He's one of my very favorites. If you twisted my arm, put me on a desert island, so that I can only read one author for the whole rest of my life until I got eaten by a shark out in the ocean because I was trying to get off that island and find find some fucking humanity. I'd, I'd probably say, give me Tom Robbins. I'll read Tom Robbins for the rest of my time on this island, is what I would tell you. Doesn't mean I don't love other writers, but you know. You twisted my arm and put me on a desert island in this scenario. You probably put a gun up to my head, because you're a violent asshole. So in my case, I'm the opposite of Tom Robbins. I like to outline. I like to think about the whole story before I start writing it. So I did that for about a week, week and a half, maybe two weeks. I don't know. But I, but I, but I visualized the story. I thought about the characters. I watched them developing in my head. And you know, I, I wrote, I wrote some, I wrote some notes down. Um, and I outlined. And not only, and when I outline, I, I literally outline each chapter. So I don't, I don't necessarily just outline. Uh, the the arc of the character and the arc of the story, although I do do that, but I outline chapter by chapter. So long before I've written chapter number thirty, I've already outlined it. I already know what's going to happen in chapter thirty before I've written it, and for me that doesn't stifle my creative process. I'm still the one telling the story. I'm still the one who created these characters, developed them, created the arc of, of this journey that I'm sending them on. So once I get to chapter 30, it's not like, you know, it's not like it's going to be harder for me to write. For me, it's easier. I like to know what I'm uh, going to write before I write it. Because then I feel like I can do a better job writing it. It's more comfortable for me. I enjoy that more. But I think I'm in the minority. From a lot of the writers that I've talked to, I think, I think I'm in the, in the minority as far as, as far as that goes. And then once I've outlined it, then I go back to the beginning, then I start writing the novel. In the case of the vampire novel, like I said, I'd written maybe three or four chapters. So then in the outline, I, I, I start with those four chapters, and then I move on to chapter five, six, seven, all the way through until uh, until I've got what I feel like is a, a story that's at least enough there that I can write, you know, a first draft, a shitty first draft. And if I remember correctly, the, the outline was 50 chapters long. And I spent, I don't know, I probably spent a couple of years writing it, because here's the thing. It wasn't, I wasn't going full-fledged into this next project. As I mentioned earlier, I was still working on Inside the Outside, and I only wanted to get away from Inside the Outside for about a month or so. So I worked on the vampire novel for, you know, about a month or so, and then I went back to Inside the Outside. And then I, and then I eventually worked on that some more, finished it, and I would go back and play with the vampire novel a little bit, but it never got my full attention. And it wasn't until 2011, when Inside the Outside was officially done and published and out into the marketplace, and it was off of my hands, that I took on the vampire novel in earnest. 
and I've been working on it ever since. So in my mind, even though I started it in 2009, I didn't really start it until 2011. You know, like really started with earnest, like this is the next project. And when I started it, like I said, it wasn't a trilogy. It was only meant to be one book. But when, when I finished the first draft of that book, that motherfucker was long. It was the longest book I'd ever written. I had no idea I could, I could even write a book that long. And I wrote it in three parts. Similar to Inside the Outside, I, I like telling stories in three parts. That's, it's just something that I enjoy. Doesn't mean it's a rule. Doesn't mean you've got to do it. Doesn't mean if you've not written your book in three parts, you've done something wrong. But I like stories in three parts. Kind of like a three-act play, I guess. Kind of makes sense to me. So I wrote, I wrote the vampire book in three parts, but it was really long. And I started thinking, well... I guess I could just publish, like, like honestly, it would have been like a thousand pages. It was it was a fucking long ass book. So I thought, well, I, I could just publish one long ass book, one of those huge, heavy ass Stephen King books. I was in Costco a couple years ago when Stephen Stephen King's book, uh, Inside the Dome, is that what it's called? Something something the dome. Anyway, I, I was I, I like Stephen King, so I was at I was at Costco, saw the book there, picked it up. It was over a thousand pages long, hardback. Picked it up. I wanted to flip through the first couple of pages, see how it sounded. Sounds great, by the way. But after holding the book for about a minute, my fucking bicep starts burning. It's like I'm working out. It's like I'm in the gym doing curls. I'm fucking tired because this book was so goddamn heavy, physically heavy, not topic heavy or theme heavy. Although there, there, there might have been some heavy themes in there. I never ended up reading it, but I will one of these days. Hello. Hey, Martin. How you doing? Pretty good, Timmy Two-Step. What's happening with you? Dude, we just got done uh, location scouting here at the Nudie Resort, and it was amazing. <laughs> so freaking badass. But I wanted to give you a heads up because we're way ahead of time. Uh-huh. So um, just checking in with you. Um, well, let me think. I mean, technically, uh, I'm, I'm home right now. Uh, I would just need to kind of, uh, uh, get myself, uh, uh, if, if you want it, if you want it to be a couple of hours, that's fine. Cause we were thinking about getting some lunch and then, uh, after that we could meet up with you if, if you wanted. Yeah, that could be cool. Oh, by the way, I, I should mention this, you know, out, out of fairness, I'm, uh, I'm recording right now. So I'm putting you on the microphone. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just, I'm doing a solo episode, and I saw your name, <laughs> so I figured why the fuck not? Let's see what uh, let's see what Tim has to say on the microphone. <laughs> wow! All right, brother. Well, uh, shoot, Tim Chisbar of Naked Alien Massacre. We just got done on a location shoot, and it's gonna be amazing. And it was wonderful having you on, Constantine, uh, for your wonderful cameo. I don't know if you talked about that yet. Uh, not yet, but I will. But uh, but but also that that was very impressive. Did you hear that, gang? That's a pretty impressive motherfucker I'm going to talk to later. <laughs> I, I hope you're not talked out by the time we do our episode. I didn't know today was marathon day. No, no. You know what? It's funny. I sat down and I thought, you know what? I, I was sitting here hanging out and I was like, I don't know. This, maybe maybe it'll, it'll be a good way to warm up before I before I wrap with, uh, with Tim. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jared's going to be amazing. Uh, so it's going to be a great couple of interviews. Well, then, okay. My team will go grab some lunch and uh, I'll text you when I'm done and, uh, and swing by. We'll make some 
sweet, sweet pod magic. Sounds awesome, brother. Looking forward to it. Take it easy. Did you hear that, guys? That was Tim Chismar. Filmmaker, writer, stand-up comedian, all-around great dude. And he's going to be a, a guest on my podcast. And and, and he's bringing a, his buddy along, Jared. Cool dude. Can't wait to talk to both of them. You also got some insight into sort of how this show goes. So I'm talking to you right now. I'm recording this episode right now. Later, I'm actually going to have two separate conversations. And then those will eventually become two separate episodes. So I'm going to I'm going to record three episodes today, including this one. But it'll make up a couple of weeks of podcasting content. Just pull back the curtain a little bit for you. Now, this time I lost my train of thought, but it was hardly my fault. I took a phone call. But I know I was talking about the vampire novel, talking about outlining, talking about the Stephen King book that was heavy, made my arm burn like I was doing curls at the gym. Anyway. Actually, you know what I want to do? Fuck, am I cutting myself off? Uh, let Let me finish the vampire story, then I'll get on to the last thing that I want to do. So, uh, so with the vampire novel, it was really long. It would have been like a thousand pages if I published it. And if I did publish it, not a big deal. I'd already written in three parts. So then I got the idea. What if I just break up each part into its own novel? Like I said, it was a long fucking story. So if I break each part, make that its own novel, then I can have a trilogy. And I love a good trilogy. Usually I love a good trilogy in the movies. Like the Star Wars trilogy. It's outstanding. The Matrix trilogy, not so outstanding. (laughs) But, you know, when a trilogy is great and on the money, oh, there's nothing better than that. I love that. Can you hear that, by the way? It's like a ladder outside the window. I think there's some work happening on, on the roof of my apartment building. It was raining over here in California, and I think there were some leaks, including a leak in my apartment. Not that I want to bore you with that. Anyway, if you can hear the ladder, then that's what I'm hearing. If you can't hear it, then just pretend that I'm hearing things. How about that? So anyway, so that's how I got the idea to make it a vampire trilogy. It was never meant to be three books. It was only meant to be one book. So that's why all three books were ultimately done, because I'd written the whole story. Then I broke it up into three books, but I wasn't satisfied just to say, okay, part one is book one, part two is book two. I still wanted to make sure that each book was good enough to stand on its own. That was very important to me. So so I spent a, a lot of time revising, reworking each book. And I actually had to write a, a lot of new chapters, you know, throughout the trilogy. Probably somewhere in the area of 20 to 30 new chapters to help fill in some of the gaps in the trilogy. Because, you know, once I took a part and made it its own thing, made it its own book, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it's not a complete story anymore. The complete story is all three books put together. The individual books now, there were some gaps. I had to fill in some gaps, develop some characters some more, add a little bit of backstory that maybe you would get in book one or book three, but now, you know, or book two. But so anyway, just a little uh, insight into my process. Um, There's a whole lot more details I could get into, but I've been talking for over an hour at this point. And I've actually, I still have more that I want to talk about, if you can believe that. I'm not even done yet. 
I hope you're enjoying this. The the solo episode that's gone over an hour. I hope this is fun for you. So here's what I want to do next. Here's what I want to wrap up with, I should say. Uh, I want to talk uh, briefly about David Mamet. Uh, there's nothing happening with David Mamet in the news. Uh, I don't know that he has any uh, new plays or movies out. Uh, he's not one of the one of the one of the celebrities who's died recently because there seems to be you know seemed to be a rash of those a few weeks ago. But uh, I was thinking about David Mamet because I, I read uh, this uh, 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 a letter or a memo that he'd written when he was uh, producing a show called The Unit. Well, David Mamet, if you don't know who David Mamet is, I'm sort of assuming, I guess, that you know who David Mamet is. He's a, he's a, he's a playwright. He's a screenwriter. Uh, he's, a, he's a film director. Um, he's probably most famous for the, uh, for the play Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, uh, produced in 1984. He won the Pulitzer Prize for Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. And then uh, later, years later, it was... Uh, Turn into a movie starring uh, Al Pacino's in there. Ed Harris is in there. Jack Lemmon's in there. I'm going off the top of my head, so I'm sorry if, if, I, if it feels like I've got these long pauses, but I'm, I'm searching my memory for the actors that I remember. Alec Baldwin's in there. Uh, I, and, you know, that's not everybody. I'm, I'm, I know I'm forgetting some names, but really great cast, really, really great movie. Alec Baldwin, incidentally, has the best scene in the movie. Anybody who's seen Glenn Gary and Glenn Ross, they know they know the Alec Baldwin scene. Stole the whole movie with that scene. Outstanding. And uh, and I found out, I don't know if I read it or somebody told me, that the Alec Baldwin scene didn't actually exist in the play, that, uh, that it was written specifically for the movie. Anyway, so David Mamet, a uh, very, very talented uh, writer, storyteller, filmmaker... And, incidentally, he looks kind of like Spock. I don't know if anybody's ever made that connection. Am I the first one? I'm not sure. Like, if you met David Mamet in person, and he and he told you, Hey, I, I used to be on Star Trek. I played Spock. You'd look at him, and you'd say, You know what? You sure the fuck did. Nice to meet you, Spock. Look up a picture of him if you've never seen him. See if you agree with me. Anyway. Uh, a few years back, I'm trying to think of the year. It was after 2000. I remember that. Um, 2004 is what it was. In 2004, he put out a movie called Spartan. And uh, by the way, when you say Spartan, do you hit the T? Are you supposed to hit the T that hard? Or should you say Spartan. Spartan. Do you hear that? You gotta hear that. They're fucking banging on the roof or something. Anyway, I'll pretend like I don't hear it. But it's out there. Spartan. That's called a glottal stop. If I remember my lessons from linguistics class. Then when you don't pronounce the T, it's something to do with the the glottal muscle in your throat. Is that a thing? I have no idea. I don't remember. But I know the difference between Spartan and Spartan. Spartan without the teeth, it's a glottal stop. What do you think about that? 
if you're going to if you're going to the movies, you want to watch The Dark Knight, and you say, "I want two tickets for Batman." You probably didn't hit the T when you said Batman. It's a glottal stop. Did you say, "I want to watch Batman"? I want to watch Batman. If you did that, then you were not applying the glottal stop. If you say my name and you say Martin, you hit the T. If you say Martin, it's a glottal stop. That's about all I remember from linguistics. But it's in there. It's in my noggin. Anyway, 2004, David uh, David Mamet made a movie called Spartan. And uh, I really loved it. Really loved it. It's one of those movies that uh, kind of fell through the cracks. I feel like it didn't get nearly as much attention as it deserved. Because it's really wonderful. Uh, but the movie Spartan uh, eventually inspired a TV series that David Mamet would uh, write and produce called The Unit on CBS. Now, when The Unit came out, I didn't have cable. I think I was uh, uh, I was I was work I was writing, and so I think I found that maybe with my writing that if I if I wasn't paying attention to cable, but you know what? I don't even know if that's right either. Either way. Um, Maybe it's just I couldn't find it. I think I'd heard about the show and I just couldn't find it. Either way, full disclosure, I've never seen it. I, I eventually saw like one episode, but it wasn't the pilot. It was like episode like four or five, something like that. The story's already going. I don't know the characters. I don't know what's happening. I feel like I'm not very invested. But that's it. Uh, I came across this article. Uh, I, I read the article on MovieLine.com. And so it talks about a, uh, a memo that David Mamet wrote for uh, for his writers on the unit. Because, of course, with the television series, there's more than one writer. That's how that goes. It's never just like one writing. Even when you watch a TV show and during the credits up front, when it says, you know, written by or teleplay by or whatever, and there's like maybe like one name or two names, uh, generally what that means is there's a staff of writers, maybe five, ten writers, however many writers happen to be on that show. They've all contributed to the episode. And then like one writer took everybody's contributions and they turned it into a script for that episode. So they get their names on the credits. But really, all the writers, the writing staff, everybody you know contributed. So David Mamet had a writing staff. And... Uh, and I guess he was, I don't know if the show was struggling ratings wise or if they were just dealing with notes from uh, TV executives, but, but something of that nature uh, inspired, inspired this, uh, this memo that he wrote. And because it's about writing and because I thought it was really interesting, I wanted to share it with you. And, and, uh, and if I have any thoughts on top of it, I'll, I'll share those as well. So the, uh, the, the article that I'm checking out uh, was actually posted March twenty third, two thousand and ten, so it's uh, it's four years old at this point. Written by Seth Abramovich. I hope I got your name right, Seth. And so at the time that Seth uh, put this out, um, let me see. The show was actually canceled when when Seth wrote this, but then this letter came up. So so here's what Seth says when he introduced the letter. Actually, you know what? I'm gonna skip ahead to the letter itself because I've been talking long enough. No, no, no. I'll read what Seth said, because it's going to help set this up. So here's what Seth had to say before, you know, getting to the memo. CBS's drama, The Unit, about the lives of the highly trained members of a top-secret military division, was canceled last year. 
But a memo to its writing staff from its executive producer, David Mamet, has just surfaced online. If you think you know where this is heading, you might be wrong. Besides the fact that it is written in all caps, there is nothing particularly ranty, pejorative, or potty-mouthed about it. Rather, Mamet lays down an extremely sensible case for what makes good television, imploring them to avoid expository writing for what he characterizes as authentic drama. Seth writes a little bit more for the setup, but I kind of think that's about enough. I think, you've, I think you kind of get the gist of it. So this is a memo from David Mamet to his writing staff. Uh, and, you know, from a Pulitzer Prize winning storyteller. If he wants to tell you about stories, then you sit down and you fucking listen. So here's what Mamet says. We'll see what we think. To the writers of the unit, greetings. As we learn how to write this show, a recurring problem becomes clear. The problem is this. To differentiate between drama and non-drama. Let me break it down now. Everyone in creation is screaming at us to make the show clear. We are tasked with, it seems, cramming a shitload of information into a little bit of time. Our friends... The Penguins think that we, therefore, are employed to communicate information, and so at times it seems to us. But note, the audience will not tune in to watch information. You wouldn't. I wouldn't. No one would or will. The audience will only tune in and stay tuned to watch drama. Question. What is drama? Drama, again, is the quest of the hero to overcome those things which prevent him from achieving a specific, acute goal. So, we, the writers, must ask ourselves, of every scene, these three questions. 1. Who wants what? 2. What happens if her don't get it? 3. Why now? The answers to these questions are litmus paper. Apply them, and their answer will tell you if the scene is dramatic or not. If the scene is not dramatically written, it will not be dramatically acted. There is no magic fairy dust which will make a boring, useless, redundant, or merely informative scene after it leaves your typewriter. You, the writers, are in charge of making sure every scene is dramatic. This means all the little expositional scenes of two people talking about a third. This bourgeois, and we all tend to write it on the first draft, is less than useless should it finally, God forbid, get filmed. If the scene bores you when you read it, rest assured, it will bore the actors, and will then bore the audience, and we're all going to be back in the breadline. Someone has to make the scene dramatic. It is not the actor's job. The actor's job is to be truthful. It is not the director's job. His or her job is to film it straightforwardly and remind the actors to talk fast. It is your job. Every scene must be dramatic. That means the main character must have a simple, straightforward, pressing need which impels him or her to show up in the scene. This need is why they came. It is what the scene is about. 
their attempt to get this need met will lead, at the end of the scene, to failure. This is how the scene is over. It, this failure, will then, of necessity, propel us into the next scene. All these attempts taken together will, over the course of the episode, constitute the plot. Any scene, thus, which does not both advance the plot and stand alone, that is, dramatically by itself, on its own merits, is either superfluous or incorrectly written. Yes, but yes, but yes, but you say, what about the necessity of writing in all that information? And I respond, figure it out. Any dickhead with a blue suit can be, and is, taught to say, make it clearer. And I want to know more about him. When you've made it so clear that even this blue-suited penguin is happy, both you and he or she will be out of a job. The job of the dramatist is to make the audience wonder what happens next. Not to explain to them what just happened or to suggest to them what happens next. Any dickhead, as above, can write, but Jim... If we don't assassinate the Prime Minister in the next scene, all Europe will be engulfed in flame. We are not getting paid to realize that the audience needs this information to understand the next scene, but to figure out how to write the scene before us such that the audience will be interested in what happens next. Yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, you reiterate. And I respond, figure it out. How does one strike the balance between withholding and vouchsafing information. That is the essential task of the dramatist. And the ability to do that is what separates you from the lesser species in their blue suits. Figure it out. Start every time with this inviolable rule. The scene must be dramatic. It must start because the hero has a problem. And it must culminate with the hero finding him or herself either thwarted or educated that another way exists. Look at your log lines. Any log line reading Bob and Sue discuss is not describing a dramatic scene. Please note that our outlines are generally spectacular. The drama flows out between the outline and the first draft. Think like a filmmaker rather than a functionary, because in truth, you are making the film. What you write, they will shoot. Here are the danger signals. Anytime two characters are talking about a third, the scene is a crock of shit. Anytime any character is saying to another, as you know, that is telling another character what you, the writer, need the audience to know, the scene is a crock of shit. Do not write a crock of shit. Write a ripping three, four, seven minute scene which moves the story along. And you can very soon buy a house in Bel Air and hire someone to live there for you. Remember, you are writing for a visual medium. Most television writing, hours included, sounds like radio. The camera can do the explaining for you. Let it. What are the characters doing, literally? What are they handling? What are they reading? What are they watching on television? What are they seeing? If you pretend the characters can't speak and write a silent movie, you will be writing great drama. 
if you deprive yourself of the crutch of narration, exposition, and deed of speech, you will be forged to work in a new medium, telling the story in pictures, also known as screenwriting. This is a new skill. No one does it naturally. You can train yourselves to do it, but you need to start. I close with one thought. Look at the scene and ask yourself, is it dramatic? Is it essential? Does it advance the plot? Answer truthfully. If the answer is no, write it again or throw it out. If you've got any questions, call me up. Love, David Mamet. Santa Monica, 19 October, 2005. P.S. It is not your responsibility to know the answers, but it is your and my responsibility to know and to ask the right questions, over and over, until it becomes second nature. I believe they are listed above. And that's the end of the memo. That's that's the David Mamet memo that I w- that I was uh, telling you about. And I think that's pretty cool. I think there's a lot of great storytelling advice in there. Again, David Mamet, he's talking specifically about writing for television. And as he mentioned in the memo, writing for television, that's it's different than writing, say, for example, a novel. Because when you're writing a novel, it's your job as the writer to give a, a full picture for, for the reader. You're creating a picture in their mind with words. When you're writing for television... The words you write, they're not going to be on screen. Your words are going to be represented by pictures, and your characters are going to be represented by actors, and your dialogue is going to be represented by those actors' voices. And so taking all that into consideration, even though it's all storytelling, it's still a slightly different medium that has slightly different you know, nuances and principles to, to bear in mind. But, he, but, but, but that said, still a really cool memo, I thought. I liked what he had to say in there. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up there. I feel pretty good about episode number 10. I feel I feel pretty darn good about this solo episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to me for the last hour. And I hope you tune in next week, because I'll have another episode. I have no intentions of taking a break next week. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget, if you're doing your shopping on Amazon, please go through martinlestrapshow.com, click on the Amazon banner on the shop page, and do all the same shopping you would otherwise do. And just know that when you do that, you're kicking back a few cents here and there back to the show, and I get to use that money to reinvest into the program to make it as good as I can possibly make it. So until then, uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Have a great day with whatever you have planned for the rest of this day. And until next time, I'll see you on the other side.